Dare we open Pandora's mystic box? To every generation, a slayer is born, except this time, there were six. This is the dimension of imagination. You are entering the mystic zone. Do you ladies see that aura? Something wonderful this way comes. Welcome to the Mystic Order podcast. We are the Mystic Order of East Alabama fiction writers, six women of an age seeking the sublime and the ordinary. And I am Mystic Margie, the Mystic Illuminator. And I am Mystic Katie, the Mystic Oracle. And I'm the Mystic Queen, Gail. I'm Marion, the Mystic Dog Whisperer. I'm Mary, the Nebulous Mystic. I'm Joanne, the Mystic Defender. Okay, today um, our topic is mystic reading, and the title is The Mystics Share Their Work. So what we're going to do today, we're going to, each of us is going to take some time to share one of their works, uh, reading the whole work or a part of the work, and then afterwards uh, we're going to have statements and questions about the work from the other mystics, and then we'll move on. And each, the format is each mystic is going to take about 10 minutes with questions. So we're going to begin our readings today with our queen, of course, uh, Mystic Gail. Thank you. Before we started podcasting, we had an assignment that we were going to write stages of our lives, and we've sort of fallen away from that because we've been so busy podcasting. And so uh, when I do write, I, I write uh, something that happened in my life, a stage of my life. I finished writing this about 10 minutes before I headed over here, so it's a very rough draft. And the name of this station in my life was called Not Clara Barton. The closest I came to being part of the counterculture in the 60s was my wardrobe. I had a collection of homemade tie-dye shirts, applique bell-bottom pants, leather fringe vests, gold-rimmed glasses, and a very strange pair of Jesus sandals. The sandals were originally an old pair of penny Weegians that had been altered with an exacto knife. The design was a series of Celtic crosses and peace signs. The shoes were a gift from a boyfriend named Steve something, now lost to me in the ether of time. Although I looked like an Abby Hoffman yippie, I was far from it. For one thing, I bathed every day, I attended university classes, and I stayed clear of drugs and concentrated on altering my universe with beer and loud fraternity parties, rather than meditation or acid trips. So while I climbed into my roommate Jane's VW bus and headed to Hampton, Georgia for a rock festival on July 4th weekend of 1969, is a puzzlement. My friends were attended, and someone had a tent, which we set up in a pecan orchard, the only shade available. The music was not really what enticed me to go. I was familiar with the headliners, Janis Joplin, Led Zeppelin, but I knew very little of Grand Funk Railroad, Al Cooper, Johnny Rivers, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Gracie Slick's band was not there. I mention this as she is one of the many people credited with the quote, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> I was there, but admittedly, I'm panning from a thin stream of memories some 50 years ago and endeavoring to document these recollections before more time has passed. The following is as accurate and truthful a retelling of the events of that weekend as available from a week recall. The first Atlanta Pop Festival took place in scorching July weather on Independence Day weekend. The setting was Atlanta Motor Speedway, a stock car racetrack 20 miles south of Atlanta. It was the height of the Vietnam War and Lester Maddox was the governor of Georgia. The 150,000 people who crowded the event were not welcomed by the governor. This was a month before Woodstock. Eclipsed by the legendary festival in New York, the Atlanta music event eventually fell into obscurity. Because the temperatures lingered around 100 plus, the local fire department was dispatched to provide sprinklers to cool down attendees in the sweltering heat. Consequently, the water showers caused a quagmire of Georgia red mud. 
And in this chaos, I stumbled over a young woman face down in the bog. Dead? Suffocating? Should I go for help? Some distance away, there was a white tent covered in a red cross. So I managed to get the girl on her feet, and a stranger helped me carry Walker to the tent. Bummer, said the stranger, disappearing at the entrance of the tent. I don't know her, I said as I handed, over, handed her over to a white coat. The end result of the girl's story is unknown to me, as well as the other three totally out-of-it patients I begrudgingly brought to the medics that day. I am not Clara Barton, far from it, and nursing is not my chosen profession. This was not my idea of a good time. Thirsty from the effort and the heat, I made my way to the concession stand. The lines were enormous, so I gave up and headed toward the pecan grove. As I walked behind the food tent, I saw a young boy. He was wrapping a rubber band around his arm and injecting, I guess, heroin. I made a wide arc around him as if he would next attack me with a needle. Jesus, outside of my family doctor's office, I've never seen a syringe put in a vein. Certainly I've never seen a person put a syringe in their own vein. I think I felt fear, and I imagined the entire festival population capable and willing to join the vein injector. I'll find Jane, I thought. She's probably ready to get out of the heat in this madness. I walked to the pecan grove, and Jane was in the tent, biding her time, waiting for sunset. She was stoked to join the insanity as soon as it cooled off. At dark, we joined the thousand of spectators in front of the bandstand. The amazing Janis Joplin and the Chicago Transit Authority captivated us. As the night wore on, I wanted to return to the tent for food, sanity, and a nap. Turning the page, audience. Just hold on. I'm staying here, said Jane. I gazed at the thousands of people around us. I don't think I'll ever find my way back here. Just find this light pole and call my name. I'll stand and flick my lighter. Jane sounded so sure of herself, I felt confident I could find her in this sea of bodies. What happened when I returned is inexplicable. Over the course of our friendship, there's been several bizarre events, but I'm just relating this one as it was my strongest memory of that weekend. I came back to the mass of people and made my way to the light pole that I knew was near my friend. From the bandstand, Johnny Winters was blasting his guitar. The music was so loud that I covered my ears as I yelled Jane's name between beats. I continued to scream her name, a foolish exercise in futility. Suddenly, Every light on the racetrack exploded and Johnny Winters was silent. The entire racetrack was a total blackout with the exception of the blazing of Jane's lighter. She was standing a football field away next to a light pole that looked exactly like all the others, including the one where I stood. None of these events seem plausible to me now. As I write them down, I think, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> That was pretty awesome, Gail, but I'd like to say, um, do you think you were possibly um, tripping? <laughs> <laughs> Over dead bodies, mostly. <laughs> In fact, you know, when I was teaching, if some kid came to me with a crushed finger or bloody nose, I always said, go to your homeroom teacher right now. So I'm definitely not a nurse. Which was very bad, Gail, because you were an after-school teacher for a long time. There were no homeroom <laughs> teachers for them to go to. Call your <laughs> Poor parents. babies. <laughs> I want to hear what it was like to hear uh, Janice Joplin. Oh, my god! She was totally and completely unbelievable. And between each song, she'd talk uh, to us like we were all sitting in a bar. Yeah. And then she would just start screaming these amazing songs and shaking her hair in front of her face and prancing. It was truly an experience to be there. But because of the experience, and particularly the bodies I had to carry to the tent, the next month was Woodstock. And when my friend said, who's going I did not raise my hand. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just jealous about Janice. I'll put that in my... Likewise. It's not very nice of me to be jealous, but I am. I'm jealous of Janice because she was with Beth Leonard Cohen and Chris Christopherson. <laughs> what do you mean by with? Exactly what you think I mean. <laughs> they both wrote about it. Biblically with. Yes. Was it Cohen, the Chelsea Hotel? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
she 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 lived a life. <laughs> that was awesome. So this was one of your stories from Thirteen Ways of Looking a Mystic. Yes, yes, and, it is. And that and what's that body of work about? The whole thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, just an hour. Our assignment was to write something from your childhood, something from your years in elementary school, something from junior high, something from high school, something from college, something from your workplace, your marriage, having children, and for some of us, old age. And honestly, the podcast has taken over our lives to a point where we don't meet and read our work to each other anymore. So this is an exception tonight. Well, that's uh, kind of an outline for our next book, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay, absolutely. I enjoyed that, Gail. Thank you. Yes, we did. (laughs) Thank you. You know, I'm keeping track of time, and it's Marion's turn. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I'm going to read the beginning and the end of a short story called The Dentist and the Bug Man that's included in The Moon and the Stars, published by Solomon and George Publishers. I did not start dating Gavin Stanley because he was a dentist. It is not like I didn't have other possibilities, even offers. Durwood Applehofer owns his own pest control business, and he was crazy over me. You can see his ads on park benches and at bus stops all over town. His picture, too, along with the logo, The Bug Man Stops Pests in Their Tracks. When I started going out with Gavin, I was young, and there were only five dentists in town. Now the town is saturated with dental offices, and I'm 30-plus. Every strip mall has a dentist office now, and they all advertise with deals on teeth whitening or invisible braces. Some even will shoot you up with Botox and call themselves a dental spa. (laughs) They are on billboards and the sides of buses. They advertise on TV and talk about gingivitis during the dinner hour. Durwood Applehofer probably brings home more money in a week spraying for bugs than Gavin does in a month these days. With liability insurance costs, seminar fees, updated state-of-the-art equipment, and now television commercials, they all take their toll on Gavin's profits. Plus, I'm sure there are more roaches, fleas, and termites in any town than decayed teeth, at least among people who can afford a dentist. I met Gavin over an emergency root canal, and he offered me a free cleaning every six months if I made him my regular dentist. He was fairly new at the time and trying to build what he called a patient base. I did not have insurance, so I agreed. At the time, he didn't wear a lab coat that made him look like the mad scientist from Dexter's laboratory. He wore nice starched button-down shirts, khakis, and silk ties, and he had nice eyes. It wasn't until he started running those afternoon TV ads on the local station that he got the lab coat. I wish he had not. His eyes look crazy when he talks about gingivitis while wearing a lab coat on TV during the dinner hour. On our first date, he picked me up in a Lexus and talked about his trips abroad. Durwood, on the other hand, had mounted a plastic sign on the side of his pinto that featured a bug wearing glasses and a tie. The sign read, Who You Gonna Call? with his phone number underneath. He also had a vanity license plate that read, No Bugs with a Z. Later, he added a huge polymer roach to the top of the car. (laughs) It was clever if you were not on a date with him, but it took the edge off of romance and pretty much ruled out ever going to a restaurant nice enough to have valet service or linen napkins. I felt doomed to eat at Red Lobster for the rest of my life, (laughs) to settle for flame-kissed tilapia and garlic cheese biscuits while Durwood's roach bonded out front with the lobster door pulls on the entrance (laughs) of the restaurant. Okay. Well, I'm going to read one more paragraph from the beginning. When a person is in pain from an exposed tooth nerve, she does not pay close attention to waiting room decor. But a roach atop a car is hard to miss. If I had noticed that there was no reading material except sports afield and six Bibles for patients to peruse, or that the reception room art was a gigantic reproduction of Christ the Good Shepherd alongside the mounted head of a dead deer, (laughs) I may have realized that Gavin was fragmented. (laughs) At least I can say that Durwood was consistent and obvious. Gavin, on the other hand, may have misrepresented himself. Okay, as the story continues, the narrator becomes a receptionist for Gavin since, for the time being, she's chosen him over Durwood. This comes at the end of the story. 
when things are not looking so good anymore in this relationship. The last straw came when I ordered the garden burger with salad for lunch one day, and he sneered, you wear leather shoes, don't you? And started up his lecture on how we kill animals for their own good so they won't overpopulate and starve to death. There was chicken salad in his teeth as he talked about that blasted net full of whatever somebody in the Bible pulled up and said we could eat from. I thought about all those crooked teeth and all that mangled metal that I smiled at day in and day out while Gavin lorded around in a lab coat and pontificated. Then I thought about the gazing eyes of that beautiful deer head in the waiting room. He had been perfect, and Gavin had killed him to have one more trophy to display with his stupid diplomas and signed offset prints and reproductions done by starving artists. I could not bring myself to state the obvious, so I simply turned my garden burger with salad over the son of a bitch's head and walked <laughs> out of the restaurant. I had ordered extra dressing, Thousand Island. I like to imagine pickle cubes catching in his meticulously trimmed mustache and greasy orange stains on his white lab coat. And now is when I'm supposed to say I reunited with Durwood and we lived happily ever after, but I did not. I was very fond of Gregor, the talking roach, when I read Kafka, and I didn't want to go to bed at night with the man who would mount the very creature on top of his car that he made his living exterminating. Again, I see that as somewhat fragmented, like the deer head in Christ the Good Shepherd in Gavin's office. So I'm single, with no money to fix the hot water heater, or the light in the kitchen, or the rotting wood under the eaves. The lawnmower's broken and the dishwasher leaks, lightning struck the heat pump, and the washer won't spin. But I'm the boss of me. <laughs> Yay. That is wonderful. Thank so you. remind me, is this a work of fiction or is it of a work it of is. autobiography <laughs> or memoir? Yeah. It, the, the inspiration for this story was when a certain dentist got my mouth jacked open to do a root canal and told me who to vote for for president one year. And I couldn't respond or <laughs> anything. And he went on and on and on and on about how my choice for president that year ran with terrorists and did not love America. And I was so angry when I got home that I the story started to form in my mind. <laughs> I think you should go out more to places that make you mad because... That's such a delightful, you know, manifestation of your anger, Mary. Mary, almost everything makes me mad anymore. Well, you should just get out a lot, except there's that virus going there's around, and I virus, know you won't. That virus going around. I, I really like some of those details. Thank and, you. And that the nerve of them to run those crude and crass ads during the dinner during hour. During the dinner hour, when you're trying to eat your supper. Did you um, read this out loud to yourself today? I read only the first page and the last page out loud to myself today and timed myself so that I wouldn't go over my limit. Did you read it out loud to yourself while you were writing it? No. Because I was, I just for fun, I looked up what some writers do for their work and they read it to themselves and if it doesn't flow they start over or change things well when i'm revising I, I always read it aloud to myself when i'm revising something because it's true and how stumble. often do you edit a short story how many times before it becomes every printable? time i read it every time i read it right up until the minute it's about to be printed i'm still changing a word here or there and then after it comes out in print i find something i should have edited when I look this up, I just want to say that someone named Esther Freud that I've Freud that I've actually don't know what she wrote. I've never heard of her, but I like this. She says a story needs rhythm. Read it aloud to yourself. If it doesn't spin a bit of magic, which you certainly did, thank you. It um, is missing something. I wonder well, if that's Sigmund's sister. I I don't know. <laughs> I I've actually never heard of this. In fact, most of the people that were in this article well I know Margaret Atwood and P.D. James but yeah. some of the others I thought who are these people but everyone that I thought had hit the nail on the head I wrote down today to add to our little podcast 
I want to add that I found a perfectly wonderful dentist who not only rescues dogs but also feeds stray cats. And I'm very happy in my new Yay. dentist home. Yay. <laughs> you, have, you have a new dentist? I've had him for several. Well, I've had him since the 2000-what election year. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't told you who, who to vote for president. Did you vote for a president when today, Mary? jacked open. Indeed, I did vote for a president today. Yeah, yeah, but as we're taping this, this is Super Tuesday uh, for us in Alabama. So uh, you'll hear this a little bit later, but... Mary's dog voted. Twice. <laughs> Is that voter fraud? <laughs> not in Alabama. Not, not if they only vote once. <laughs> well, Marion, I, I love your characters and your voice always. But, um, Thank you. Yeah. Those, I really had not heard of Durwood or Gavin before, so I was really interested well, in Well, you need to read The Moon and the Stars. I know. I, I thought I read that. Especially yeah, no. since, especially did since I did the cover. <laughs> Actually, if you've come to Mystic Meetings, we've heard about Durwood before. <laughs> but it was a good while ago. It oh, was a very long Durwood. while ago. Yes. Well, mystic meetings are somewhat like the 60s. Yes, if you remember them all, there. you weren't really there. <laughs> you weren't really there. You know, sometimes I'll be looking. When we used to give everybody a copy of what we wrote, I'll be looking through them, and I think, I love this. But they didn't put their name on it, and I'm, I'm going to get all of them. Can't wait. So the next meeting, I'll read it to you guys and go, which one of y'all wrote this because you didn't put your name on it? <laughs> it's me. <laughs> The time is ticking away, and it's time for Joanne, our mystic defender. Yes. Well, like Gail, this is an original work, and it's part from, and when we say original, it means basically that we have not read it before at a mystic meeting. That's new what work. I mean by an original work. New work. Oh, new work. Thank you. Thank you. That's. I know. I know. <laughs> but this is... One of my 18, is it, novels that I'm working on, Gail? These, this one is finally coming to fruition, we hope. So this is a book. It's a, yeah, it's a memoir, I guess, um, that I'm writing for a young man. So this is called Churches. Tell me his name again, Mommy. I leaned over, and it's going to be in first person. The, the young man's name is Daniel. Tell me his name again, Mommy. I leaned over to the front seat close to my mother's head. Whose name, Daniel? Father's, I exclaimed. Spinelli, Father Spinelli, she replied. Now sit down. If we have to stop short, you will go flying through the windshield. I did as I was told and wiggled my way back down near my older sister, Monica, who had a one-year-old Emily in her lap. To my right sat Michelle. She's seven years old and just two years older than me. Gretchen, who is 11, had three-year-old Rebecca in her lap. Both older sisters are looking through the side windows of our 1972 station wagon. My older brothers, Don, Timothy, and Michael, had claimed the very back third seat. I wanted to greet the priest by his name and chanted Spinelli over and over to myself, sometimes whispering it out loud. My father soon turned the station wagon into the small parking lot of Immaculate Conception Catholic Church. A white cottage of a church, it is wide enough to have two naval blue shuttered windows on each side of the sky blue door. A half moon stained glass window crowns the entrance. The window shows a dark cross and a white and yellow glass circle edged by blue flourishes. The church is only three windows long. Six stone steps mount to the door. The church is surrounded by mature cedar trees that shade it from the hot Mississippi sun. The church was built in 1885. At the peak of the roof, above the door, is a simple cross. My family tumbled out of the car from all sides and back. My mother Judy is straightening bows and dresses of the younger girls and trying to plaster down my sleep-ruffled hair. My dad, Don Ross Sr., herded us all toward the entryway. As we neared the door, I broke away from the pack to greet Father, who was standing at the bottom of the stairs welcoming the churchgoers as they arrive. Just before I began to run, Timothy whispered, spaghetti, into my ear. Father spaghetti, I shouted in greeting, <laughs> and my brothers roared with laughter. I looked confused at their mirth, but turned my attention to the short, dark-haired priest who smiled broadly at me. Hello, Daniel, where are your lions, he asked in his thick Italian accent. 
looking over my head, scanning the area as though they would appear. He greeted me this way every Sunday, and I love the idea of having lions as pets. Can I ring the bell, Father? I asked as Father Spinelli was shaking my father's hand. My father stood a few inches taller than the priest, and his lightning hair was a big contrast to the father's dark, wavy hair. Mom had come up with the girls, each older sister with a younger one by the hand. My mother came up with Emily on her hip to free her hand to greet the pastor. Rebecca was toddling along, holding on to Mom's skirt. Good morning, Father, Mom greeted, brushing a loose lock of her own hair back. Please, Father, I was pulling on the priest's cassock. Daniel, my father warned, and I froze, dropping my hand to my side. Father Spinelli looked at my, fa- my dad. Is it okay? I have not rung it yet this morning. Mom took the cue. Daniel, ask politely. I looked at my shoes, scuffed with dirt. Father, may I please ring the bell? Yes, he smiled, but only nine times for nine o'clock mass. The priest held up nine fingers. I held up nine of my fingers to hold the number in my head. Instead of a bell tower, a dozen feet in front of the church was constructed what looked like a fancy well covering. This is where the bell is. The story goes on, and I'm going to cut it short. The story goes on that the parents become disenchanted with the Catholic Church, and they leave and start going to family churches. There is an argument between the priest and the father at a dinner, and this was the last time Father Spinelli came to dinner and the last time we attended Immaculate Conception Church. The next week, instead of heading to the church on Sunday morning, we all still dressed with our church clothes, but went to Jenny's house. Jenny was a friend of my mother. I never saw Jenny at the Catholic Church. On this Sunday, she and her husband gathered the Rosses and several other families into her large den. Her husband stood up in front of the group of about 30, welcomed them, and began praying. I heard murmurings and amens peppered through his prayer. Then another man picked up a large Bible and read from it. Then he read from another book with the picture of a man in a suit who was smiling. I was busy looking at the people around him. I did not see many boys my age, 10 years old, although there were lots of children. I wish we were at Father Spinelli's church. At least that church had pictures and statues and candles to look at. Lovely. Yes. Really lovely. (laughs) Are family churches a thing that I don't know about, or was it just a thing in his experience? They're still a thing. This, and Daniel's story, is that he started off Catholic but grew up in these, and I would call them a cultish church. You know, maybe I'm being rude by saying that. But one of the major stories he remembers is at 12 years old, um, they did not believe in, in medical help. They did not believe in hospitals and doctors. And at 12 years old, a girl that was very sick came into the church. The pastor at that time, or the preacher at that time, tried to heal her there, and she died on the spot. And then he tries to raise her up from the dead. So it's a little bit of his story and how he's gone from that type of background. Um, Went to the church school there. They never discovered that he was dyslexic, dysgraphic, and had some sort of audio-visual problem with reading uh, until and read his first book at 30. So that's, that's that's where the story is going. This sounds like a real person. It is a real person. It's a memoir. <laughs> it's a, a memoir, but is it doesn't? Don't you write your own memoir? I guess you can. I'm writing, but he can't um, write very well, so I'm writing his memoir. <laughs> Hence the dyslexic dysgraphia. <laughs> I believe we've had this person on a podcast. We have. Oh, I remember. Oh. That. And he told a remarkable story about um, he and a young friend of his lifting a car that had collapsed on a neighbor. Yeah. Um, how many times did you read this before you read it to us? Twice. It, while editing it. Um, because I just finished it this morning at 9 o'clock. <laughs> that's, that's what I did, just finished mine. I did notice you said it was navel blue, and I'm trying to ev- imagine what, did I color, say nav- what navel? color navel blue might be. Navy blue is what I, what I had written. Well, I didn't catch that. <laughs> well, I did, because I kept thinking, my navel isn't blue, but, Depends on what <laughs> but Joanne's might be. <laughs> navel as in a body part or navel as in a boat. Exactly. Yeah, there is a navel blue, I think, or you could argue that there's a blue that 
the Navy uses. You could get a defense attorney to argue that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their Navy uniforms are blue. And lightning hair. Your father's was lightning hair. Lightning, yes. That's a word. It's getting lighter. Oh. <laughs> like, like darkening. <laughs> darkening as opposed to darkening. As opposed to darkening. Um, um, well, one of the suggestions in here was to make it simple, which I don't think any, any of us do. No. Go down to the lowest common denominator, which none of us do, thank goodness. But And I was going to say, and you'll be, because the joke, dear dear listeners, is that I never edit. There, I have a, a quote from... Um, Truman Capote, when Jack Kerouac would write, he would put shelf paper into his typewriter and just start going away. And when he finished a roll of shelf paper, he'd put another roll in. And when someone asked Truman Capote how he thought of Jack Kerouac's style of writing, he said, that's not writing, that's tapping. <laughs> so I do type many, many times. But this did get edited at least once. Esther Freud says... Editing is everything. Cut until you can cut no more. I don't really agree with that. What is left often springs into life. Well, this is, yeah, I can see that. Well, you're trying to tell his story, too. Yes, so and do that's you, part do of it. Do you read it to him? Yes, I do. Okay. I do. Kind of check. Right. He and he does read, but he reads very, very slowly, and words still jump around the page. He has to go over things in fact, we spent, that's why I'm so excited. This will be probably one of the first chapters. I thought that one sounded very edited. Actually. Yes, Thank I'm you. <laughs> so, <laughs> the naval. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking for that word because I think I said Navy, but no. I may have. I may have. So, Joanne, I have done one book with somebody like this, too, where you're speaking in their voice. And it is it is a challenge to, to right. capture somebody else's voice and you've done a beautiful job I think with that. Too, I, I feel like you have really found his voice um, I that hope you're so. channeling him yes and to brag on Katie Katie has written the well I guess it's yeah. part of the bio memoir the biography of um, Benny Atkins who is our Medal of Honor winner here locally so. and that has to be almost like doing a portrait oh, oh yeah. yeah it has to be the hardest thing for an artist to do is someone's portrait because people never think they look like their portrait. My mother used to paint people's portraits in town and she always put her own nose on the portrait. So it <laughs> looked exactly like the person with my mother's nose. Oh, you know, you'd notice that um, a lot of artists do draw people that look like themselves. Oh, yeah. And that's why they've said the Mona Lisa kind of looks like Leonardo da Vinci. Because if you look at a lot of his paintings, his John the Baptist, and then his, um, oh, he has another one of uh, some other, uh, not a biblical character, but they all have the same face. And that face looks like da Vinci, and it also kind of looks like the Mona Lisa. So it's kind of like he was using his own face. Look look at da Vinci's paintings. He didn't do I that wonder, many. I wonder if that's true of writers. They mimic the people that they... Uh, love their writing the most. I do. I, I mean, think so. When I was sure. I very so, young and read Truman Capote, I decided this is who I want to write like. And I would actually sit down and not diagram, really, but sort of tear his sentences down and try to write one that had an article, a noun, a verb, a, exactly like his as a practice exercise. Wow. So cool. I think I yeah. think so. And I think that you are going to write like whoever you enjoy reading. Who's I think next? it's true for visual artists, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, definitely, you know, I kind of copy, maybe not an individual, but maybe like a style or a movement that I'm really fascinated yeah. with, like surrealism. Margie, looking at your artwork, I can't believe you copy anybody. <laughs> <laughs> We're in my home and they're surrounded by it because I never sell anything. <laughs> that well, that's because true. you make 500 of everything. I know. I'm kind so of if you sell 200, which is more than what everyone else is selling, there's 300 left. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, listen, we do need to move along. Uh, and it is time for Mystic Mary to read. Okay. I was just taking some pictures, but I guess I'll stop and oh, read. Okay. I'm going to read a story that was published in our book, The Ploy of Cooking, in, oh gosh, I looked up the year and already forgot it, 2012 by Upper Creek Publishers. And the story is called Holding On. 
It is based on a true story about my husband's grandparents. Loosely based. My grandparents grew up on neighboring horse farms in Hungary where both their families raced Lipizzan horses for the Spanish Riding Academy. One night, when they were still teenagers, they ran away from those family farms and snuck onto a boat that sailed at midnight bound for America. Along with the other immigrants, who huddled up in ethnic neighborhoods, clinging to their Hungarian customs, they found work and had a family. My grandparents had a chance to return to Hungary only once many years later, this time crossing the Atlantic on a Zeppelin rather than a shoddy boat. They never told a soul about what happened on that voyage, but as soon as they got back, my grandmother fell to her knees and kissed the ground, her tears splashing the American soil, and they never spoke another word of Hungarian in their house again. At least, this is what my Aunt Teresa told me. Aunt Teresa's full of family stories, which is good, because my father is not. She scolds him and tells him it's important to hold on to the family history, but he says he can't remember of the ta- any of the tales that she tells. After all, she's the older sister. And so when Aunt Teresa comes to town, I'm happy to hear what she has to say. She says my grandfather brought the gypsy music over with him on that boat, and the temperament too. He had to go to jail once for refusing to pay his taxes on the money he played paying piano on the radio. How can you pay a tax on music, he asked, when it belongs to the people? During the time he was detained, my grandmother made her sons play music every night. Sometimes long after their fingers and eyes had given up, she'd switch their hands if they stopped too soon. And every Sunday afternoon, she took a big pot of lung soup to her husband, always offering a taste to the warden, which infuriated my grandfather. He said she was flirting with the man, the man in charge. This is hard to reconcile with the woman I know as my grandmother, who came to live with us when she was old. I think she was a hundred, and by then she'd slipped back into her native tongue and spoke only in garbled Hungarian. All she wanted to do was sit on the couch watching reruns of I Love Lucy. That crazy Lucy, she yelled at the screen, these being the only words in English she used anymore. I'm not sure she ever figured out who I was. My grandfather may be long gone, and my grandmother glued to the television set, her years lost and reconstructed in 30-minute segments, day after day. But Aunt Teresa brings them both back for me with her stories. My favorite is about the day my grandfather didn't die. It happened a long time ago, when my grandmother was young and pretty, and my father was just a baby. One morning, the doctor drove up in a big black carriage. He stepped out and approached the house, with his cloak opening up behind him when he walked so that he looked like a giant crow coming up the path. He brought the terrible news that my grandfather had been hit by a trolley car in Boston and killed dead. Aunt Teresa, who was just a little girl back then, watched wide-eyed while the neighborhood men carried a coffin from the back of the wagon into the living room. As Aunt Teresa worried trying to figure out how a big man like her father could fit into such a small box, the grown-ups arranged the sitting-in to be held that very night. My grandmother rushed through the house, sealing all the windows and doors, upstairs and down, except one window in the parlor. I want to see when his soul flies out, she said. Aunt Teresa stared in fear at the window. The neighbors showed up with heaps of food, fisherman's pie, egg balls, and tongue croquettes. The seven sisters from next door spun like tall ballerinas, arranging the flowers and the food and leading people to chairs. The whole neighborhood came out. My grandmother made the older boys play their instrument. Rudy played the cello and Arthur played the violin. My father, Little Paul they called him, was learning to play the piano, but he was too little to join in, and she made him sit in a chair with Aunt Teresa. And don't fidget, she hissed at both of them. Finally, the priest came in, and my grandmother collapsed into her chair, suddenly calm. He immediately started chanting in Latin, swinging swinging an incense ball on a golden chain. The room filled up with smoke that made my Aunt Teresa fall half asleep. When the priest chanted and spoke in his deep sing-song voice, my grandmother stared at the casket laid out on the dining room table, and fingered one of the seven lace handkerchiefs she'd given my grandfather on their wedding day. Sometimes she dabbed her tears with a corner. Aunt Teresa says she never saw her mama look so sad. The priest kept on and on in a never-ending voice, and my father started to fidget. Aunt Teresa pinched him on top of the ear. Sit still, little Paul, she said sharply into the same ear. She was afraid of the trouble she'd get into if she couldn't keep her little brother settled. All of a sudden, little Paul jumped out of Teresa's arms, pushed himself off the chair, and ran through the room to the coffin. Little Paul, get back, Aunt Teresa yelled, but her yell was drowned out because all of a sudden, 
My grandfather sat straight up in the coffin and started yelling himself. He was cursing before he even got a look around. Vashkivan, lo fash ashegdba. He kept yelling and everyone's eyes were as big as dinner plates. His hands reached the side of his coffin and he pulled himself up. He stumbled out of his wooden box. My grandmother screamed and ran to the coffin. Ye gods and little fishes, he's back, she cried. <laughs> when he stood up, she hugged him hard and he hugged her. Neither of them seemed to notice my poor father was stuck right between them. Aunt Teresa says she thought they were going to smother him then and there and they'd have to throw little Paul into the coffin and resume the grieving ceremony. Papa, Papa, little Paul finally managed to yell through the folds of his mama's billowing black skirt. He squirmed out of their hold and looked up at his father. Speak English! That night, there was a big party. The seven sisters sent Aunt Teresa and little Paul down to the cellar to bring up ten bottles of Chianti, which they tasted later when no one was paying attention. After he finished his round of angry cursing, my grandfather agreed to join the party, and he played the piano so loud the tightly sealed windows and doors began to rattle. Rudy and Arthur did their best to keep up, their bows fiddling madly across their instruments. When Aunt Teresa woke up in the morning, she was still wearing her black dress from the night before. My father doesn't remember the night very well, but he does remember what happened much later. My grandfather died again the year before I was born. This time a major heart attack hit him harder than the trolley car in Boston. When we used to go visit my grandmother, back before she forgot everything and had to come down south and live with us, my dad would take me to the cemetery and show me my grandfather's grave. See that little bell there, he asked, pointing to a small iron bell above the tombstone. And to see the little wire? Your granddaddy is buried down there with the end of the wire wrapped around his hand. Your grandmama used to make me come sit here by the grave night after night, watching the bell and listening for its tiny chime. <laughs> wow. That's great. And that was for from the Ploy of Cooking? It is in the Ploy of Cooking. And, and there are recipes for lung soup and tongue croquettes. Yes, that's right. And Mary is um, infamous in the ploy of cooking for offering us such delicacies, along with squash for squash casserole for three hundred, brownies, florin, more, more. six hundred. The squash casserole would feed the entire middle school, so that's about a thousand. So about a thousand, and brownies florentine candy and dish properly served, and boiled water. All of her delectable recipes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. Didn't you, you start that originally as one of our assignments? I don't think this was an assignment. This was just a story that needed to be told because the part about him dying and waking up at his own setting in and being buried with a bell are true. Those parts are true. So it was just a story that I had to write, and I've written several iterations of it, and this is the final. Did you read this several times before you read it to us? Yes, ma'am. I read out loud constantly while I write, as I write, while I write, after I write, and during every iteration. I'm a mad editor. Yes, she is. She has inspired me. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's perfect and musical, but it's been read aloud many times by me. Well, was that a story that Joe, your husband, told to you? No, we learned these stories when Emma discovered a long-lost sister living out in California when Emma was, uh, this is many years ago when the internet was new, and we discovered that Joe had an adopted sister who lived out in California, and she had grown up with Joe's grandparents and had tales to tell and photographs and stories, a, a huge treasure trove of stories, and Joe's grandmother did indeed live with them in Boston and uh, watched I Love Lucy, and his father did indeed go to jail for not paying taxes. He had a radio show where he played the piano, but um, it, it, it's a mishmash of some of the things that Joe remembers and then some of the things that his older, much older adopted sister that he didn't know he had remembers. Wow. Was that before um, 23 and Me? Oh, long before, but they did do a 23andMe and discover that they were not at all related. There are many versions of why she, Joe's father brought her home from the hospital when she was one day old to be raised by his parents. Wow. And then when his parents died, he adopted her. And so he wasn't really her real father. And we wondered if maybe he was her biological father, but <laughs> Joe and um, her name is actually Teresa, did a DNA test and they aren't related. So... We still don't know why she was raised by his family, but probably because the Hungarian uh, immigrants were very 
protective of each other, and it's possible he was just looking out for somebody who worked for him. I was going to say, what I like about your story is it held my attention. That's important to me, that the plot's interesting and doesn't meander too much. I wish you would, when you read, you'd slow down because I was trying to grasp what you said in the last <laughs> sentence and you were going on. But I wanted to I was tell you what, about the time. I wanted to tell you what Margaret Atwood we're doing said okay on time. about holding the reader's attention. Margaret Atwood, hold the reader's attention. This is likely to work better if you can hold your own. But you, <laughs> you don't know who the reader is, so it's a lot like shooting fish with a slingshot in the dark. What fascinates A might bore the pants off B. It's true. You know, there is, um, I, I know Mary has done NaNoWriMo, and I think a couple of the others of us have done NaNoWriMo. And one of the things I recall, they send you little, what do I say, you know, encouragements. And one of them is, has your, has your story made you cry yet? And that's, I think that's wonderful. And it, has it held your attention? I think that's, that's the same idea. That's also the test for a good Baptist sermon. <laughs> <laughs> If it makes the preacher cry. <laughs> Mama said when she moved to Jernigan and was taken to the Baptist church the few times that they went before she moved Daddy to the Methodist, they judged a good day at church with how many peop- by how many people cried. Not the altar call, but the, the tears. I do that with American Idol. Oh, sha. <laughs> Just the stories of the people who can sing make me weep. <laughs> okay, well, um, Margie, it's your it's turn. The, it's, it's my turn to, and I'm going to read a story that I wrote f- also from the ploy of cooking, and it also concerns death. <laughs> Purely such, coincidental. Such morbid writers we are. <laughs> but the title of my story is Earl Lives, and it is a true story that uh, was told by about my husband's grandmother who was dying um she was on her deathbed and a woman who took care of her uh, told this story so i'm going to read it so granny gert is my husband's grandmother or my husband's mother granny gert seemed to be asleep but we all knew she would not wake up from this stroke as our family gathered around her bedside gail her caretaker and nurse for many years told us a story about her own grandmother's final days. So this is Gail's story. When Grandma Dim was dying, she looked just like Miss Gert, calm and silent. Everyone in our family, Buddy, Earl, Mabel, Becky, and their children and grandchildren gathered around her bed. Grandma's breathing was slow and labored. We were waiting for her final breath when suddenly... Grandma sat bolt upright in her bed. Grandma opened her eyes, looked around the room, and said, I've been to the other side, and it is indeed the land of milk and honey, green pastures, gardens, and abundant life. I saw Papa, brother, sister, and all our beloved dogs. They came wagging their tails and and licking my face. They're all waiting for me to join them, but not just yet. I'll be going with a storm coming suddenly out of the west on a beautiful clear day. The black thunderclouds will fill the blue sky and the wind will begin to blow. The rain will fall so hard that all the corn in the fields will be slashed to the ground. When the storm ends, I will have journeyed to the other side. We were frozen around Grandma Dim, transfixed by her words and her gaze. She surveyed the room, looking carefully at each of us. Then she stared directly at my cousin Earl and stated, And Earl, you're next. Grandma Dim immediately reclined in her bed and closed her eyes. The next day, Gail continues, I drove down to the Walmart. It was a beautiful day and the sun was shining, but the storm came as Grandma predicted, and it was a fearsome storm. I jumped into my truck and raced to Grandma's house. Sure enough, the cornfields were horizontal as the rain poured and the wind howled. When I got to Grandma's house, she was dead. Our family knew Grandma Dim was in heaven. She had said so. All eyes looked for Earl. He was standing by the bedroom door. He smiled meekly. And we all say, as long as Earl lives, we all feel fine. (laughs) 
I love that. Uh, so the story, the, to tie it in with our recipe, um, that night, uh, Granny Gert actually did die that night after Gail told her story. Uh, she had no dramatic last words like Gail's grandmother, Dem. However, she'll be remembered as an amazing woman and a wonderful cook. And so the recipes for that uh, story were her vanilla nut cookies, and then mine was for corn on the cob. So her little her proclamation about the storm is just beautiful. Is yeah. that from you? No, that's from Gail's real story. This is a true story. This was a woman that took care of, uh, this is my first husband, Harold's mother, um, and really was the only person that my, her husband, that, that Granny Gert didn't fire, because after she had her stroke, she could only say a few right. words, but all the people that came to take care of her, she would she would go, you fired, she you fired. She could have a reality TV show. I know, yeah. she could have. Or be president. But anyway, when Gail <laughs> came to take dead. care of us, she was a big country woman and just very, you know, down to earth, but filled with tales. And so, But the wording of it, I mean, the actual yeah. words, the yeah, this is how she told together. the story. I want to okay. point out that I am not the Gale. No, no, it's not our queen. No, 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 no. This was, it just happened I did use her real name. I could have changed it to Bernice or something, but I just, you know, I just left it. I could. I was going to say, but how did you remember all that? Because it is beautiful wording, Margie. I, I can remember, like, death stories. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a dramatic, you know, event. And it was very eerie to be around someone who was, you know, you were new that were on death's door. And then you have the story about a passage that was pretty enlightening, really, except for Earl. But <laughs> So I loved the part about the dogs greeting them yes, in heaven. Yeah. And it reminded me that... Years ago, when my mother was still alive, someone she knew through family connections who was expecting the end of time called her and said, when I am taken to heaven, would you take care of the dogs? Which deeply offended my mother, not because she, the implication being that mom was not going to heaven, but because the dogs were not. And I mean, she was so mad because she's... And so um, later... The, um, the the nun who did Dead Man Walking, who's oh, she's yes, yeah. friends with, I believe Virginia Transu is friends with her. And Virginia, who's a local person, for those of you who, who don't know her, um, had gone up to Maine, I think, to see her and told her that story. And the nun said, oh, of course they go to heaven. And mom said, I could be Catholic. <laughs> That's I teach Sunday school, and I had a, a, a young man in just panic because he asked somebody he said do, do dogs go to heaven and this would be marion's response as well and he said and i'm his sunday school teacher he said if dogs don't go to heaven i don't want to go and so i told him that god created everything it's going to be a new eden and i have no doubt in my mind that an animal whose name is god backwards will be there <laughs> perfect perfect well, uh, Katie, are you ready? I guess so. Okay. I'm just going to launch into this. Yes, do. Ted Nixon, where are you? At the KOA campground on Apollo Road, back in Michigan selling used cars, at Mulats dancing a quick half-step with the Germans, or at Prigines gliding around the floor to the music of the Branch Playboys? In, in heaven with grace? I wish I knew, because just now I'd sure like to have a dance with you. You may not remember me. It has been 30 years since you first asked me to dance in Brobridge, Louisiana. But I remember you and everything about that night, including what brought me there in the first place. Boredom, curiosity, and a crazy idea that I could run away from instead of toward an inevitable end. Actually, what brought me to that part of Louisiana was a work conference in Baton Rouge, one that I hadn't one that I hadn't wanted to go to in the first place because it meant I had to leave behind unsteady hearts, mine and one belonging to a man I adored. They were both teetering on the edge of goodbye. I knew this old truth, the one who loves the least has the most power, and I knew I loved the most. Attending this meeting seemed a sure way to shove things over the edge in the wrong direction. But my job required it, so I'd climbed into my car and headed off on the six-hour drive from Alabama to the big raggedy, feeling as raggedy as could be. 
After two days of, of a three-day conference laced with casino buffet meals and no I-miss-you messages from home, I could no longer stand the sense of dread. As thick as the Baton Rouge humidity and as dark as the haze coming down, coming from Baton Rouge's chemical smokestacks that was, that was seeping into me. So I checked out early and headed away from the city and away from home. I'd always wanted to see the Evangeline Oak, a plain old ordinary tree made extraordinary by heartbreak, and it seemed a good place, as good a place as any to face my own reality or mull over my own fiction. So I drove southwest toward the oak, trying to escape the ending of my own, of my own story. When you run off that way, though, sometimes the story is just beginning. I stuck to the interstate until I crossed the Atchafalaya River, where I dipped down onto the backest roads I could find. A boring interstate road makes me think too much. A back road, it makes me dream and feel curious. The oak was handsome enough, but it felt unremarkable, so I soon climbed back into my car and kept driving south toward New Iberia, the original home of, an, of old family friends. But they were long gone. It felt lonely. So I headed north again, tired from my travels and from trying too hard to not think too hard about what I, what I didn't have back home. I took a room in a cheap no-name and no-phone-in-the-room motel in St. Martinville. The parking lot crunched with the sound of 18-wheelers coming and going and the sound of truck drivers' boots as they wandered in and out of the rigs, hollering at one another. There was hardly a, hardly, hardly a lock on the door, and it was, light, it was still light outside. I was a little afraid, more of what I'd gotten myself into and how much more lonesome I was soon to be than of the truckers who hollered and wandered among their rigs in the gravel parking lot. So there I was, sitting alone. So I went to Mulot's, the local restaurant, and was eating gumbo, drinking blackened voodoo beer, and listening to the house band, knowing that I was about to be alone. So there I was, sitting alone at a small table and watching a large group of large Germans, all draped in Mardi Gras beads, despite the fact that Fat Tuesday had come and gone months before. Polkaing around the wooden dance floor to Cajun music. Polka and Zydeco bands, after all, have, both have accordions. They kept asking the waitress to talk Cajun to us. She kept saying, I ain't a Cajun. And despite that, everyone seemed in good spirits. But despite that, everyone seemed in good spirits. And mine was feeling a little lighter just watching. I even found myself tapping my toe to the music. That being without a partner or a much natural grace, I sat my ground. That is until that is until you approached me and asked me to dance. I don't know how to, I said, being both honest and evasive. I'll teach you, you said, and before I could protest, you led me to a back corner of the restaurant and showed me the basic waltz and a little two-step, then led me to the dance floor where we skimmed along the floor while our fellow dancers stomped around it. You made it easy. All I had to do was follow, which was sadly something I had proven to be very good at in my life. Before long, I knew part of your life story. I knew that you and Grace, your wife of many years, had started going to Cajun dances in Detroit, which struck me as an odd place to find Louisiana music, but who was I to question it? I learned that you and Grace had taken your vacations in Lafayette, bringing your motor home down to the KOA campground so you could hit all the dance clubs in the area. I found out that you and Grace had planned to spend winters at the campground once you retired. I also found out that, just as you were retiring, Grace had died. This was when I think I fell for you. This was when I committed to the entire night with you. I decided I should come anyway, you said. You talked about the legend of a Catholic priest who had brought dancing and music back to Acadia after his predecessor had banned all the music and revelry. The priest said, when you dance, you trample the troubles of the world. I am here trampling my troubles, you told me. Well, seeing as I had some troubles myself, I agreed to follow you to every Lafayette, Louisiana club we could hit in an evening, and there were a bunch. I know because I followed the taillights of your red convertible with a vanity tag reading, Yahoo, which you told me was your approach to life these days, to each one of those joints. At the end of the evening, before the sun rose, but not much before that, we said goodbye in a gravel parking lot, and I never saw nor heard from you again. Sure enough, it was not long after I returned home that the man in my life walked away. I can't say it didn't hurt. I can say that it hurt less because of you. I can also say that having heard you talk about Grace with such longing and affection and knowing that you missed her made, made me believe there could be something more. That was 30 or more years ago. These days there is much more to life than I ever thought I could have, much less deserve. And lately, Ted, I've been thinking about how much I wish I could thank you for showing me that possibility, for teaching me how to trample troubles and waltz ahead through grief and loss. Yahoo. Nice. Well, that was a tear-tear. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. I did follow this 
fellow all over Lafayette, Louisiana one night and and it was crazy and it was wonderful. And I would never do it again. <laughs> well, maybe I would. I would never be asked again at this point in my life. I think I'm beyond that. <laughs> I think you would be asked. Mm. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> I like this better than your gardening columns. Well, I thought I would have read that for you or, you know, something else that um, that I'm working on for the Bartram Trail Conference, which I've thoroughly enjoyed doing. But this was seemed a little more creative. It certainly was. I was going to say, or better than um, a story of blowing up people. <laughs> Where is St. Martinsville? Um, so it's in that Lafayette, south of Lafayette, Louisiana area. If you, Bridge. Yes. Mm, yes. Yeah, so I think St. Martinville, and it's been a while since I've been there, although I hope to go back someday. I think it's below. Isn't St. Martin the I'd only have to look at a map. black saint? No. There's tons of... Augustine was a black saint. There were lots of black saints. Perpetua and Felicity were black saints. And they... Perpetua and Felicity, they're early martyrs. So there's there's tons of black saints. We I just the, we just I don't have the say. Chalk version of Saint Martin. <laughs> Marion keeps talking without a microphone. It's not important what I said. <laughs> yes, it is. It always is. Katie, I loved that story. Well, I just you. loved it. I loved it too, Katie. Thank you. I have to know. Did you write it specifically for this, or did you? Has this been I, smoldering? I've had this written for a while, and part of my problem was, of course, which is the the curse of editing is that I've been editing it for this. And then I didn't finish editing it. So that's when I kept losing my space. Like, wait a minute, what did I mean there? Let me just make it up as I go along. Well, <laughs> just you know, a few and words we were here and there. Talking about editing and maybe I'm getting the hang of it. You know, we just recently came from and when I say we, Mary was there. Who you were there, Katie. Uh, Janice Ray came oh, yeah. and what gave about us some me? Am I chopped liver? No, no, you weren't there though. Were you at Janice Ray? She was. Yes, yeah, she was. Absolutely. Oh my God, you are chopped liver. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I sat next to you, Joanne. <laughs> was that you? <laughs> That's okay, Joanne. I went to a play with a friend, and the next week we asked each other, had they seen the play? <laughs> well, yes, we went together. We I said, I've had. Uh, you know what? I've had a bad. Day. I've had well, a bad week. Well, let me just say, the mystics haven't even started drinking yet. That's oh, yeah. after. Anyway, but she was talking about editing and editing and editing and gave us even a list of things how to do. And maybe that's what my problem was. I had never been told how to. Helen Dunmore, that I'm not sure who she is, said, <laughs> reread, rewrite, reread, rewrite. If it still doesn't work, throw it away. It's a nice feeling, and you don't want to be cluttered with corpses of poems and stories which have everything in them except the life they need. And at one point, the story I read tonight, I, I just pitched it and started over because it sounded like a bunch of facts, and a, and a, uh, a pop festival is not a bunch of facts. <laughs> we could probably do a whole podcast on our editing, but I, the first two or three times I write something, I start completely over. Like, I, I write the whole thing, and then I realize what it was about. And then I write the whole thing again, and I focus on what it's about. But I don't know what it's about until after I've written one draft. And that's why I can't do that thing that writers talk about, where they put butcher paper on the wall and plot their plot. Mm -mm. And I'm mighty tempted to think that those people write plot-centered fiction which is not my favorite kind of fiction. But it sells. It sells, but then look at, and I look at what tell else you, sells. It, with creative, yes, I can see that that would not work at all. But with doing this memoir, I, I have butcher paper well, everywhere. Well, doing a, a literary yeah. a pa paper because I have to literary analysis, you need some organization you, too. But it, you know, what you're doing... Joanne is creative nonfiction yes. because what you're doing is tying still in that whole creative literary sense to mm -hmm. a story that's a factual story, and that to me is also gorgeous. As it's it's a very gorgeous form of writing. It is. Well, especially as you know, I think you were able to record your your people, um, your person, but every time I pull out a tape recorder, this guy just. He just yeah. clams up. He just, it freezes him, so. We don't have time to do the mystic moments, which makes me so sad. We oh, have yeah. had mystic moments one after another with our reading. I think it's wonderful. We, uh, you had a mystic moment when I prophesied where your keys were. Yes. Ooh, 
that's right. I lost my keys, yes. moment time. And Marion, and I was just about beside myself. That was part of my bad week. Um, and Marion said they're on the path. I thought, no, well, they're not on the path. And sure enough, I had carried a watermelon. The path to what? The path to the little house, what I call oh. Jimmy's sh- shack. And there's I thought a it was refrigerator. the path to righteousness. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's Marion talking here. <laughs> she um, did, and sure enough, I, I thought she was crazy, but I was at my last wit's end. And You're sure supposed enough, to dr- draw when you lose something. Draw, well, and that's where ask you... Margie. I cannot draw. <laughs> yes, you can. You can I, I, I'm teaching a drawing class for adults, and and uh, two of the mystics are in it, Joanne and Marion, and they're both doing very well. Thank so. you for for first graders. And yes. Mary's taking my drawing class too. Anyway, I think that we... a, a, a podcast for next season on lost things would be a really good topic. Oh, I love that. Just saying, I'm putting it down now so that it won't lose. Yeah. My, so I won't okay. forget yeah. it. Yeah, do. So it won't be lost. Lost. <laughs> I have got so many men that I want to mention in Lost Things. <laughs> <laughs> we better close this up, girls. Yeah, we've 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 we've. I hope you have enjoyed our readings, um, because we've enjoyed reading. We have. Yes, yes. we've enjoyed reading for you. And um, who would like to tell how you can get in touch with us? It's got to be Mary. I will yeah. tell you. Because <laughs> she knows it by heart. <laughs> well, it's just the same way you get in touch with everybody these days. You put it in your search engine, the Mystic Order podcast, and bam, you'll find that we have an active social media presence on Twitter and on Facebook. When Twitter, we are at the Mystics Pod, and on Facebook, we're the Mystic Order of East Alabama. Our podcast can be found on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And if you would like to contact us and you don't want to use social media, you can email us at themysticspod at gmail.com. And we'll show up. If you invite us to show up, we'll show up at um, all kinds of festive parties, too numerous to mention because we're out of time. We are. I should also mention, though, that we have a new outlet for her books in addition to being able to order them online. Yes. They're now Auburn. at Auburn Oil Company Booksellers in yes. downtown Auburn. They are, where we uh, podcast is li- podcasted live last week. Yes. So if you're looking for our books. Too much fun. Yeah, stay tuned for that podcast. Facebook, and the website will link you to our books on Amazon, and I guess I need to add that to our website. Awesome. Great. Well, are we ready? If um, Remember, be the, be flame, the flame, not, not the, the moth. moth.